Welcome to A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. We need your feedback. Can you let us know how we're doing by visiting awordinseasonpodcast.org and participating in our two-minute survey? After the survey is complete, you can come back to the landing page, awordinseasonpodcast.org, and download a free 30-day devotional as our gift to you. Download now, and you'll receive Doug Stringer's weekly Monday morning Provoke-A-Thought emails, a challenging and encouraging message, and a great start to your week. Be sure to go to awordinseasonpodcast.org and check out all the free resources that are available to you. And Dr. Bernard and I have been friends for nearly four decades. This is when we first met through Christian Men's Network, actually through Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole. Dr. Bernard was the chairman of the board for Christian Men's Network and has become someone who's really influenced my life over the years. I've seen the consistency of character, the consistency of his walk in faith. And even from his testimony, we'll hear a little bit from when he first started to who he is today, even though he's got a global reach and very successful in every sense of the word, he has remained consistent in his passion for God, his love for people, and he really is a statesman for the kingdom of God in so many ways. We saw how God used him after 9-11, as well as other crises throughout the country, Hurricane Sandy, And so it's been an amazing opportunity to know Dr. Bernard, administered for him at the Christian Cultural Center over the years, back when you were still in the supermarket. And so it's been an amazing, amazing decades of friendship and gleaning from him. I was just looking at my book. I originally wrote it under the title, Who's Your Daddy Now? Dr. Bernard actually wrote the foreword to it and came out with Whitaker House as a new book, an updated version under the title, In Search of a Father's Blessing. Just reading over that again the other day and just other things that I've learned from Dr. Bernard has reminded me that relationships define our destinies and the kingdom of God's built our relationship first with God, then with one another. Who we are is not on the basis of ourselves alone, but on the influence we've imbibed into our lives or friendships, relationships along the way. Most of you have read the biography of Dr. A.R. Bernard. He's the founding and senior pastor of Christian Cultural Center in Brooklyn, New York. He's authored books like Happiness Is and Four Things Women Want from a Man. He will be speaking on leadership today and about how he's overcome by the blood of the Lamb, the word of his testimony. They have over 40,000 members in one of the largest congregations in America. He's always been a man of humility who walks in, in reverence and fear of God. And he uses those opportunities as a platform to expand the kingdom. And uh, whenever there's a major crisis, like in the Bahamas or Puerto Rico, Dr. Bernard has graciously reached out to me and calls us, how can we walk together? How can we serve? In fact, Christian Cultural Center during Hurricane Ike, I believe, and Rita and others actually sent volunteers down to serve with us. And I remember, Dr. Bernard, some of the folks from your church wanted was, instead of going to a decent restaurant, when we found some opening up, they wanted to try Jack in the Box because I guess they don't have Jack in the Box in New York City. So I thought, you don't want to go to Jack in the Box. I'll buy you more than that. They, no, people want to try Jack in the Box. So I said, okay. Anyway, um, Dr. Bernard, one of the things that you know, in your bio that you talk about is that you had been part of a nation of Islam at one time, and God did something radical in your life. So I want to introduce you now and take your freedom, but I'd like to hear a little bit about your story of your testimony as well, and then we'll go into some other questions. Wow. Uh, First of all, thank you for the invitation to be a part of this conversation and gathering. 
And uh, shout out to, to Randall. Uh, he's just a great brother who's become part of our team. You know, we're, we're at a particular place in our life and ministry where it's about creating something that we can pass on to the next generation. It's about creating a platform and a context that we can develop leaders and pour into them and pray that they'll take it out into the future and do an even better job than we did. So I find that a lot of those relationships are the kind of relationships that are in my personal space right now. So I'm grateful to him and his involvement in the New School for Biblical Theology. And it's about that. It's about public theology. It's about the intersection of faith and culture, where I have lived and ministered, you know, for the last 43 years. So uh, I'm excited about that and the opportunity to be with you, of course, and to be with you, my friend, Doug. We go back, yeah, man, four decades. That's a long time. And it wasn't just you learning from me. It was us learning from each other. I really love and appreciate the passion that you have for the disenfranchised, those who are marginalized in society, and your openness to sacrifice uh, on their behalf to bring the love, the life, and the light of Jesus Christ to them. So thank you for what you do, man. And I hope I didn't lose the sight of the question. I think you want to know about the Nation of Islam. And I, I will tell you, in these times that we're in today, I, I feel like I'm being, you know, uh, transported back into the 60s when I grew up. Because, you know, when I was growing up, we had every revolution imaginable going on in the United States. There was the war in Vietnam, there was a civil rights movement, there was a black identity movement, there was the effects of Brown versus the Board of Education, which is desegregation of public schools, which I was a part of, being bussed out to schools in other communities uh, than the one that I lived in. And America was in spiritual crisis, music revolution. Uh, it was just so much going on at that time. And growing up without a father in a single parent home, my mother doing the best she could, I didn't have the leadership of a father, the, the input of a father to develop a philosophy for life and understanding of, you know, my own identity. I did not experience the kind of acceptance and sense of belonging and affirmation that a father gives. So it was the streets that gave me that, that I experienced that. And because I was, for whatever reason, by God's design, always socially conscious, I was aware of what was happening around me and got involved socially and got involved in activism. In our high school, we actually organized high schools around the city of New York to make a concerted effort to bring African-American uh, studies into the high school. Because when we experienced history, American history in those days, it was more of a spectator sport for us, people of color in the classroom, because we did not see ourselves as part of it. So, you know, that's where I was. I was looking for order, for discipline, for strength, and like I said, a sense of identity. So in my exposure to many of the movements that was influencing the communities of color at that time, the Nation of Islam stood out to me because it offered identity. It offered a response to the failure of even the Christian church in America to address the socioeconomic plight of blacks in this country. It addressed issues of manhood in my life. 
It addressed issues of strength and, you know, our place within American society. So I ended up committing from 1970 to 1975, fully committed to the nation of Islam. And it provided those things. But somehow intuitively at that time in my life, I knew that God, truth, and reality were synonymous. And if I found one, the other two should be present. So I found order, discipline, a sense of identity. I did not buy into the scapegoating of white people as the devil. I always understood it was the systems and structures that were in place and the people who were indeed using those systems and structures to their benefit or to the benefit of the common good. I understood that, but I didn't find God. And with God missing, I could not give my soul fully to this movement. So I, I appreciated it more as a social protest movement than a religious belief system that I could give my soul to. And within those five years, from 70 to 75, Jesus Christ, at certain key moments, made himself real to me along the pathway of that journey until finally I was at a meeting invited by my secretary at at that time, I was uh, in banking, uh, she invited me to a meeting with a guy named Nicky Cruz who was sharing his story of conversion to Christianity and why he became a Christian. And I went. And that night, January 11, 1975, something deep and profound happened in my heart. And two things. Number one, I had an explosion in, in my spirit, and I have the language to articulate it now, but I didn't back then, that I... I heard these words, I am the God that you're looking for. Mm. And I somehow intuitively knew that it was Jesus Christ. Because for me, Jesus was a prophet in a long line of prophets. And embracing his deity, embracing him as the, the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and even the whole idea of a Godhead, you know, that was foreign. But that moment, it all came together. The second thing, that exploded in my heart and my mind is I and my word are one. And that was so important because the Jesus that I knew was based upon the iconography in American society, which was primarily a white Jesus and removed from my experience and my context. So when those words, I and my word are one, exploded inside of my heart, all of a sudden Jesus and the word became one, and the scripture became Christ to me. And that's where the relationship began to develop. So it wasn't the institution of Christianity that saved me, it was the person of Jesus Christ incarnated in his word. And that's where a whole new spiritual journey began. Well, I know we have talked before because uh, since those days when your secretary kept saying to you to go with her, uh, you kept saying no, which you said kindly just to get her to stop, to leave you alone. You, you agreed to go to the Nikki Cruz thing because he was an ex-gang member. And since then, of course, both of us are friends with Nikki Cruz. And uh, I jokingly say, sometimes I can't hear a word that Nikki Cruz is really saying <laughs> with an accent, but there's an anointing on it. People run to the altar. I'm going, what is that? And so, and we, I know we've joked about that. And you said the same thing, that it was, it was the anointing of God that was on that moment to combine with what God had already done inside of you that brought you to that providential moment. Yeah. And of course, then how'd you go from there 
to, I know, uh, in birthing Christian Cultural Center, and then from there, uh, doing what you do today. I mean, all over the world as a statesman for the kingdom of God, still overseeing well over 40,000 members at Christian Cultural Center, considered a leader, not just in the church world, but uh, as a statesman outside the church world. What took you from where you were and catapulted you into the place of pretty quick influence in your community and around the world? You know, in the the first couple of years of my conversion, I discovered I had a gift to understand scripture along with a passion to articulate it in a way that the layperson could live it out. You know, most of the theology that reaches the world doesn't reach the world through us leaders. It reaches the world through the lay people who take it out into the marketplace, who live it out in all of the contexts that they are living out their faith in society. So my passion immediately became, how do I share this faith in a way that articulates it clearly to a world that is removed from the context of the church. And and that's where Christ in culture was birthed inside of my heart and mind. I could not articulate these things as clearly as I can today, and I continue to grow in that. Uh, But I knew that the intersection of faith and culture was where I wanted to be. And I also knew that finance, which I loved, was not my future, that there was something more to it than that, that there was a higher calling. So for the rest of the 10-year period that I was in banking, I wrestled with that sense of calling. And I will tell you, I do not recommend my pathway as a model pathway. God dealt with me quite differently and accelerated my growth and movement into ministry. But I knew that finance was not my future. And I later discovered that that 10-year period was very instrumental in preparing me corporately to run a ministry of the size and scope that our ministry is today. So that was my Egypt period that prepared me for the kind of leadership that I have to present today. But it was really the the birthing. And then, of course, I read Niebuhr's uh, incredible work, classic work, Christ and Culture, that really helped to frame, you know, my thinking with regard to Jesus's relationship with the culture and the church's relationship with the culture. And that's what I've tried to to live out in ministry throughout the 43 years I've been at this. Wow. You know, you began to know me pretty much early on after I was thrown into the ministry. I didn't seek ministry, but when I began to see the needs of people around me, and of course, Dr. Pinnell knew me back in those days, taking uh, street kids and gang members off the street and homeless people into my apartment, then into a house that was given to me, and then into another uh, townhouse that was given to me. I just kept filling them up with people that had need. So I, I began to realize when people said, well, this is a ministry. I go, really? I thought this is what all Christians are supposed to do. So I would say the same. Don't do the same pathway that I did. Uh, God has called each of us to a different gift, just like Pastor Hermos Shariot, who's uh, been written up as the Billy Graham of Iran. Uh, he and I have been on the border of Iran with hundreds of underground church leaders and 
and he has a, a global television network. He primarily was reaching into the Middle East, but now is reaching far beyond that. I think all of us have a different place of calling where God calls us into that moment, and then he prepares us and develops us to stay in that lane, but yet to be a blessing to the rest of the body of Christ. And I've seen that with you, Dr. Bernard, over the years and the consistency of your faith and the consistency of your character. I think we both learned from Dr. Evelyn Lewis Cole that our personal gifts or giftings can take us so far, but only our character can sustain us. And so uh, thank God for that. Now, I know that in the last year, I know you yourself had been affected by COVID. Many of us on this call and many, many others around the world were praying for you. And thank God you're doing well now. Is that one of those moments? Because I, I, you know, I want to talk a little bit about how as a leader who has such great responsibilities that you have overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. I know that's one of those moments, but there's probably been others along the way. Because I, even when I first went to speak at Christian Cultural Center back when it was in the shopping center and you had multiple services and they come in one way out the back door and do a tent, have donuts and come back in the front door and yeah. leave the next. So, and I know that even back then you had the haters from former relationships and Nation of Islam and others who didn't understand you, that some have become your advocates now, but back then were adversaries and there was uh, hits on your life. You've had drive-by shootings at your home in the past. Those are times you've overcome, but what has helped you to overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony? Is there specific moments that you've really had to dig in that way? Wow, you just went through quite a few moments in my life. And interesting that you use the language moments because that's the title of a book that I will be releasing within the next uh, year or so. And it's called Moments. Wow. And, and, you know, I look at different moments in life and have stories attached to it. And it came because of a moment that someone else experienced and shared that story with me. And I was blessed to be a part of that very moment that changed them and took them from the streets of Syracuse, New York as a drug addict after losing their family, uh, you know, almost losing their life and how a moment encounter at a uh, Sunday evening feeding program with a ministry where I was speaking literally changed their life around. And 15 years later, here we meet up again at a pastor's conference because that, they're now pastoring a church upstate New York. So the book is about those moments. And we have many of them. And life is a series of moments. And each moment already thought out, worked out by God that we have an opportunity to participate in and experience his grace. Uh, one of those moments was during COVID, where March 28th, you know, I was experiencing all kinds of symptoms. But then with the shortness of breath, I said, you know, I better go to the hospital. So I went into the hospital and I was there for a week. And I had full-blown COVID with symptoms that were not even in the news yet. And it was there that I experienced a theme of darkness for three days. And I looked into the abyss, man, and I will tell you that it was the, my surrender, my abandonment to God's providence that gave me peace at the time that I know with pre-existing conditions of asthma, that virus could have taken me, I would have been gone. 
So abandoning myself to the providence of God, knowing that he's in control, and I was at peace with whatever outcome he decided uh, on this, it was good. But then as the theme of darkness challenged me, the Holy Spirit brought to me that text in John where it speaks of Jesus being the light that shined into the darkness. And the darkness couldn't comprehend it, couldn't overcome it, couldn't absorb it, couldn't ally it. And I started thinking about that. And I will tell you, I had that moment of light that penetrated that theme of darkness in the hospital room. The providence of God gave me peace, but the word of God as light gave me strength. Because what gives you peace doesn't always give you strength. That word gave me strength. And God began to raise me up. I had an incredible team, medical team, working on, on my behalf. And by the end of that week, I was leaving the hospital, went home, was in quarantine, but glad to be alive. And something shifted in terms of my relationship with God. It took me to a much deeper level of humbling me before God. And it opened a space of spiritual understanding that my congregation, that, you know, others that I interact with, and as well as my family and I am personally benefiting from. Wow. I know that being in a position of people wanting to pull on your time, relational equity, so many people want to associate and get credibility by association with those who are visibly successful or even in their perceptions have something that can offer them. And as one of my friends who I write about in my Leadership Awakening book is probably one of the wealthiest men in Asia, very well known around the world, uh, used to say to me, he doesn't know who his real friends are because he has heads of state uh, wanting to meet with him or he's got people that want jobs from him or they want to do business deals with him. And yet he's limited in who he knows are really his friends. And, and I know for all of us, we experience elements of that. Uh, I jokingly talk about a time where I was hosting a weekly gathering for our city uh, in a Bible study at a hotel ballroom. And I heard some music playing in another ballroom pr prior to our meeting. I went over there and saw a worship band. And I said, uh, said, oh, are you guys doing a worship set tonight? And they said, yes. And I said, well, we have a Bible study every week down at the other ballroom. And they said, really, who are you with? This is the leader of the worship team. And I said, well, I'm with such and such ministry. I didn't say it was me. He goes, oh, you mean with Doug Stringer? He's a good friend of mine. I go, really? And so, you know, people want credibility by association. And, and some people want to steal, as we've learned, Dr. Bernard, that people want to not just borrow, but they want to steal that association for their own credibility. How do you handle the, the pull on you from so many levels, not just in the church world, but also in the other arenas of society, the seven uh, spheres of the culture, so to speak, as some call them, how do you deal with so many pulls on you and staying focused on the lane that God's given you? Success is about managing continuity and change. And part of that is managing relationships. And it goes back to some of the basic things that you and I were taught under the ministry of Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole. And that is understanding the spatiality of relationships and who you bring in to different spaces of your life and what the requirements are of those individuals who occupy spaces that are close to you. 
Dr. Cole taught us the difference between lust and love, that lust is the desire to benefit self at the expense of others, and love is a desire to benefit the one love at the expense of self. So we have to discern who loves us and who lusts us. And that has been foundational for me. So I look at people and say, okay, are they just here to get, or is this the process of mutual exchange where we benefit from each other, where we bless each other? So I try to judge it that way. I don't mind being used as long as it's mutually beneficial. And, and people occupy spaces either for, because they have the level of maturity necessary to occupy a space close to you, or they are there in that space for a purpose. And that purpose could be for a moment, a season, a reason, or a lifetime. And I have to sort through all of this. So discernment is critical when you're managing relationships. And you know, people can have all the money in the world and be the best at managing their wealth and the worst at managing relationships. Yeah. Relationships are the network for life. It is one of the stewardship responsibilities that are given to us besides our time, our talent, and our treasury. It's our relationships. Mm -hmm. And no matter who I've dealt with in whatever sphere or context within the marketplace, people struggle most with relationships. Their relationship with God, themselves, and other people. So I've learned over time some very important lessons about managing that network for life called relationships. You know, you, you said a lot in that. In fact, I wish I could write fast enough to take those quotes from you. But I've watched you. And, you know, my wife says to me all the time, she goes, Doug, you know, that person is just using you. And I always process and say, look, if I'm being used, but I know I'm being used, I'm not being used. In other words, I'm giving up that time for the sake of the kingdom but I've watched you maneuver through, and I've been with you at times, even at your new facilities over the years at Christian Cultural Center, and what an incredible, magnificent ministry there that you've established, not just for New York City and, and Brooklyn, but it's expanded all over the world, of course, with your new Bible school, uh, School of Biblical Theology Seminary. But I've watched you with people that, that I know that you knew they just wanted to borrow your equity. They wanted to get something from you. But even when you knew that, I've watched you maneuver through that graciously, focused, but graciously. Uh, how do you do that? You, you manage time, but you've also been able to take the high road when others have, uh, you know, and knowingly know they were just using you. You know, I, you, you have to have a set of values and an understanding of purpose. Your values guide your thinking your sense of purpose guides your activities. And I have a set of values that guide my decision-making process. That's the only way I can make decisions quickly and confidently. And when any of those values are in violation, I have to decide whether I continue in that relationship for a greater good or whether I have to remove myself from that relationship because I may not be able, it, that relationship may put me in a position where I may have to compromise those values, my moral standards, my moral guidelines. So it could be anybody, you know, I will be very, you know, open and transparent as I was part of, blessed to be a part of 
the advisory council with uh, with President Trump, you know, and I was there for specific reasons. Uh, I believed having an agenda for communities of color, the urban community, uh, the poor white community in America was important to me. And if it was going to be important to this administration, to his administration, I wanted to be a voice at that table. I believe very importantly uh, in the preservation of our religious liberties in this nation. So there were very two important reasons that I need to, felt I needed to be at that table. And I was willing to be there along with my, my colleagues and do what we could. But I still had certain boundaries, certain parameters and expectations from leadership when it came to certain specific issues. And this has nothing to do with the leader's individual moral life. That's a different scale of judgment. But the individual leader's moral capacity when it came to making judgments for the common good. And when I became concerned and there was a conflict uh, within those moral boundaries, I knew and I was willing to take the heat to step away and at the same time still offer my support, which I did to my colleagues and to the administration. So those were very important moments where you become challenged. The thing about power is, and you know, you've seen me navigate power with, with, with whether it's presidents or governors or mayors or, or, or people in, in, in positions of financial influence, you know, power can be quite intoxicating. So you have to navigate that with the humility that lets you know that you're not working for yourself, you're working for God and you're working for a greater good, God's kingdom, God's sovereignty here on earth. And those become guiding principles for you to protect you from yourself, your own ambitions, and to protect you from the weaknesses of others. There lies something that we had talked about earlier about your consistency that it's not something you did just for one leader. You've had multiple mayors uh, in New York that you've had a strong influence. You've had senators, you've had governors, you've had other presidents that you've interfaced with. So it's the same values that drove you, not necessarily party. Uh, as I wrote an article uh, a while back called, I'm not beholden uh, to the donkey or the elephant party. I am of the party of the, the lion and the lamb. <laughs> and uh, that that we're under you know one new blood that we are one nation from one blood from every nation so obviously we all have political preferences but we need as ambassadors of Christ as you have shared with us and have watched you maneuver through regardless of what people think you've got to stay in the lane that God's given you and have an influence beyond a particular lane of one political party or one political preference preference You've been able to, to be a statesman for the kingdom and as ambassador for Christ. You said something earlier, too, to know your values and understanding purpose. And, uh, and, and also you mentioned something about levels of relationship. I think both of us have talked about, we've learned through the late Dr. Evan Lewis Cole as well and others, there are times that we move to new levels of relationship. So you have some that are lifelong I never give up my relationships, but the degree of time I give and the kind of time I give to those relationships might change throughout time. Have you had to maneuver through that as well? Many people have been friends and they're lifelong friends, but they may not have the same element of priority in your giving of your time. You know, that speaks to the maturity 
that comes with quality relationships. I find that relationships such as ours, all right, quality relationships that stand the test of time are low maintenance. There is not this emotional dependency, you know, or codependency that comes with certain relationships when those relationships are mature and of quality. And I think that's what I experienced more and more. Jesus said, narrow is the way that leads to life. And that is so true. As you grow in life and mature in life, there is a narrowing that takes place in terms of who and what you can give your time to. And those who understand growth and development and movement from one level to another appreciate that growth and development, even when it means that you cannot spend the kind of time that you may have spent at one moment in the process of that relationship. And it doesn't change the relationship. I try to be low maintenance. <laughs> I try my best, you know, and that helps to preserve long term the quality relationships that I have. As you said early on about the importance of legacy and having a platform for the next generation to do even greater things. And many are already thinking about retirement and things like that. And I know you could be enjoying a time of rest and retirement, but yet it's like you are continuing to give a platform to the next generation, you transition places of, of position. And as we've learned that, that you cannot give responsibility without authority. And so you, you develop all these new things, including the seminary and ongoing work at Christian Cultural Center and so many other things that you're involved in, how at this time, when you could be enjoying the beach somewhere, what are some of the things that are on your heart that are so important in leaving a lasting legacy and creating these new platforms? And what are some of those platforms? You know, Samuel Clemens, through the authorship of Mark Twain, his pen name, he said these words. He said, find a job that you love doing and you'll never have to work a day in your life. And that's my problem. I love what I do. I love the, the, the platforms, the opportunities. I love the idea of creating something, raising people up and pouring in them to lead it out into the future. Uh, I'm in a very special time of my life. I have the wealth of knowledge and understanding and resources and relationships that have aggregated over the last 42 years, 43 years of ministry, and I can now be a well to others and pour into them. So I'm having so much fun doing that. So NSBT uh, and other entities that we created, C4, which is a fellowship of ministries and churches across the country and around the world that we're gathering within a particular theological framework of Christ and culture uh, is happening. I'm involved in as a 50% partner in a $1.2 billion economic development project for affordable housing here in New York City that includes retail and educational facilities and commercial. And it's a model that we want to take to other cities around the country. So I'm, I'm having a blast, man. <laughs> I'm having fun. You know, the Bible says a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. An inheritance is spiritual, it's intellectual, it's motivational, it's emotional, it is relational, as well as material in terms of possessions. So I have all of that that I am sharing and pouring into others. And I'm watching them grow and develop and, and flower.
I also had the opportunity to take on people in crisis, leaders in crisis, who just need someone to believe in them and walk them through the crisis because they have, they're so gifted, they're so talented, and too often we tend to abandon them when they're in crisis. So, I mean, I'm just leading a full life right now. That's amazing. You know, I was thinking about one of our guests and longtime friends, uh, Bishop Vaughn McLaughlin, when you were sharing about the economic development. And I've known Bishop McLaughlin for a few decades as well. What they've done in Jacksonville took over a dilapidated area, a mall that was was not succeeding, took it on, made the anchor store the church, and now have multiple businesses there and continues to, to do incredible things, not just in Jacksonville, but uh, around the world as well. And just the, how God gives creative ideas. At the end of the day, it's because you have a passion for God and a desire for people to succeed. And, uh, and that's what I see as a commonality with each of you that are on this call. And what you've been talking about, Dr. Bernard, and I've watched that in your life, even with the crisis in the Bahamas or in Puerto Rico or, or disasters across America, even during Hurricane Sandy, as I was with our team there for many weeks working through that whole area, you reached out and said, how can we be praying? How can we serve? How can we give? So there is this at the core of your values is a heart of after God, but one of generosity and care and compassion for others. Well, if I may interrupt you, uh, I turn to you because of your consistency, your faithfulness, your success. I turn to you because of your track record in terms of what you've done. And when we think about responding to crisis, the first thing that comes to mind, okay, what is somebody here as America and international doing? What is Doug Springer doing on the ground? How can we come along and support? So success breeds success. And let me just, if I can just speak to that, because it's so important. You know, we have come through four industrial revolutions in the last 400 years. And everything is growing so fast. Growth is no longer linear. It's, it's, it's exponential. And linear growth is always at the same rate, but exponential growth, as you know, increases in speed over time. And things are growing faster than our ability emotionally, spiritually, motivationally, morally, to sustain it unless we focus on maintaining our spiritual, intellectual, motivational, emotional, and moral strength. And I think of that passage where it says, beloved, I wish above all things that you prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. So again, you open this conversation up with Dr. Cole's quote that, you know, uh, our gift, talents, and abilities can take us to heights that only our character can sustain. It's true of our world at large, but especially true in those who represent the kingdom of God. We've got to make sure that we continue to develop and grow in character as we grow externally in all the successful things that we achieve. It's interesting that many of us on this call and, and those that are connected with us would have some common core values that you had talked about earlier, knowing what your values are. One of those is that we all have a heart to know the presence of God through prayer, being in his presence, getting into his word, taking that which might seem complicated and making it palatable and simplified so the working of the gospel can go forth and changing our culture, et cetera, impacting the culture. In fact, just today, an online magazine put us as one of their cover stories 
and they did a seven-page spread on us called Compassion Evangelism. What people don't realize is that it doesn't take massive amounts of funds nor large staff. It takes the willingness to say, I'm available to God, the feeding of the 5,000. And, and people are amazed how very small our administrative staff is in comparison to our volunteer army that is global, which really gets the work done because it's in their hearts to do. You were talking about the importance of leadership and reconciliation in a multicultural world. How do we continue to cross our racial, denominational, generational lines, meeting at the cross together, and have uh, the centrality of the cross in the context of the practical side of real issues that we have to work through? How do we continue to be intentional in the midst of such divisiveness and polarization? Because one of your values, as long as I've ever known, is the area of reconciliation. So how do we carry that message, even in our diversity and our differences of opinions? Wow. You know, I could talk about some of the things that I'm doing with the American Bible Society. We formed something called the National Church Advisory Council, and we're working on building into ABS a sensitivity and outreach to churches uh, across the country around the issue of reconciliation. Uh, I, I'm part of a board of directors for something called Faith and Prejudice. Uh, Dr. Bernice King, Dr. Martin Luther King's daughter and I, and a host of others. We are building bridges between white and black churches. In answer to your question, the best way of going back to values guiding our thinking and purpose guiding our activities, I would approach it, and not would, I do approach it with a framework of four things. Number one, in order for us to reconcile, to, to repair something that was torn and broken, all right, it's going to require, number one, humility. The willingness to humble ourselves, the willingness to put aside whatever privilege that we may have. And I'm not just talking about in the, in the context of race relationships here in America, white privilege. No, privilege comes in many ways. It could be the privilege of relationship, of education, of power, of influence. You know, we have to be willing to put aside our privilege, all right, and humble ourselves in such a way that we are willing to have a conversation with someone who is in a different context than us, at a different status of life in us. Second to humility, it's going to take empathy. Empathy is so important. Because empathy says, let me understand your context. Let me understand your history so that my conscience can be sensitized to your story. And based upon that empathy, I can walk with you. Not as someone who's looking down at you, but someone who is peer level, looking in your eyes and understanding this context and history and the need for us to walk together. So it's going to take humility. It's going to take empathy. It's going to take a spirit of collaboration. It's not going to take all these organizations working by themselves, doing their own thing. It's not going to take conversations amongst white people in the white community and black people in the black community and Japanese in the Jap Japanese community. No, it's going to take all of these communities and organizations and entities coming together beyond their own context and interacting and collaborating and working together for the betterment of the whole of our society. And, and, and finally, so we, it's going to take humility, it's going to, to take empathy, it's going to take a spirit of collaboration, and 
number four, it's going to take moral courage. It takes courage to change, to change circumstances, situations, broken systems and structures and policies and relationships. It takes courage and you have to have the moral courage to move through what it takes in order to affect change and positive outcome. So one of the words that keep coming back is that we have to be intentional about crossing those barriers. You know, when we sit at a table with so many that may disagree, there is an element of civility at the table of dialogue that's not just about one person pontificating or one person speaking at, but it really is a table of dialogue. And I found that people who disagree uh, on social media can sit at a table and actually have a civil conversation if we're intentional to be willing to take that risk, as you said, takes the moral courage to do so. What are some things that are fresh on your heart that you feel like are important and how can people find out more about some of those things? Well, gosh, uh, they can go to my website, AR Bernard, or go to arb.tv where we're putting a lot of content out that is really capturing some of the things that I'm involved with. And most importantly, the conversations. We need to keep the conversations going. We've been taught by Dr. Cole that communication is the basis for life. When communication breaks down, abnormality sets in. The ultimate end of that abnormality is death. So we have to communicate. We have to keep the conversations going. And those conversations should move us towards action. So we're facilitating conversations around the country in wake of a uh, police shooting of a person of color in Knoxville, Tennessee, which has created tensions. On June 29th, uh, Dr. Bernice King and I will be having a town hall meeting in Knoxville to talk about policing, to talk about police community relationships, issues of race and racism. We're gonna have those conversations and we want to continue having those conversations and facilitating them uh, across the country. So it's really doing whatever we can using our influence, our platform to make things better. We have a Judeo-Christian faith and amongst the, the Jewish people, they have a saying called tikkun olam. It means repairing the world. It means making the world a better place. It's about working towards the common good until for them, Messiah comes, and for us, until Messiah comes again. That's our responsibility. Amen. Wow. I could go on for another hour, but I know for the sake of your time as well, uh, Bishop Vaughn McLaughlin, if you're still on, uh, I'm going to ask you to, to close us in prayer today. Thank you, Dr. Bernard. It's always good to be in the presence of uh so many great men and women of God, but particularly Dr. Bernard, he and I have a common friend in James Mormon mm. in Detroit, Michigan, and uh, we've done some things there together. Um, always admired his ministry. I've been on several calls with him. Um, a fly on the wall recently. Uh, he preached for one of my former sons. Well, my son, uh, my former youth pastor, John Gray. Uh, pastor John Gray was my youth pastor. Uh, before he took his journey and uh, he did a wonderful job, Dr. Bernard, and I appreciate you for your kindness and for your fatherly spirit and for your your redemptive nature. You're just a, uh, a, a reconciliatory, reconciling guru. And I'm so, I'm so wonderfully blessed to be a part of that. Doug Shringer and I have known each other for years. I also see John Ogletree on the call as well. 
and others that I have loved greatly over the years. And so thank you for being a part. Thank you for sharing your heart, man. You're an absolute beast. If I can say that, not like Beauty and the Beast or Beast of Burden, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I got you. I got you. <laughs> All right. So, Father, thank you for this time and thank you for this uh, wonderful impartation. And God, thank you for this reminder of your, your ability to tear down walls of partition and to make up yourself out of twain one new man. God, that there's no difference between us in the kingdom. It helps us to demonstrate that unity so that the world will believe that you sent your son, Jesus. So God, I thank you, I love you, and I honor you, and I pray that uh, these principles, these points that were made today, this uh, this spiritual food that we had, this lunch that we had this afternoon will produce in us and bring forth fruit 30, 60, 100 fold for your glory. I appreciate you, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless amen. We wanna join you in prayer today. You can email prayer at somebodycares.org. You can also call or text our 24-hour Somebody Cares prayer line, 855-459-CARE. Be sure to head over to awordandseasonpodcast.org, check out our free resources, fill out our survey, and download your free devotional. We want to say a big thank you for all those who have supported us during disaster and crisis response efforts. If you'd like to see the latest updates, visit somebodycares.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.